One more passage of Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I could read the whole chapter, but what I'm going to do is read to you verses 1 through 3, and then skip down to verses 22 to 23, and fill those verses in during the sermon. Um, And then we'll have uh, our Celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But let me read to you verses 1 through 3, go down to 22 and 23. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Verse 22. Samuel said, this is to Saul, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. The word of the Lord. Now, commentator Gordon Ketty grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland, and he tells of a time when he was a young man. He was in in the city. A man collapsed in front of uh, front of him on the pavement. And he ran over to him as well as many others, but he, I think he got there first. He was holding this man's hand. He saw this man go from red, the color red, to the color blue, to the color white. And within a few minutes, there was an emergency unit there picking him up and taking him to the hospital. Everybody went back to doing business as usual. But Gordon said that his mind was running fast. He said he realized this man had crossed over the divide, the great divide. He was thinking very solemnly in the Hebrew 9, Hebrews 9.27 came to his mind, it is appointed unto man to die once and then to face the judgment. And in a moment, we are shopping. In a moment, we are having a good time. And then the next moment, there's a tragedy. We're faced with crossing the river from this life into the next life. We face the judgment of God. Crossing over into the next life is a reality. We must take it seriously. We need to make sure that we are in right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not the easiest thing to talk about. It is appointed unto man to die once and then to face God in the judgment. But the next verse after verse 27 says this. So Christ, this is verse 28, Hebrews 9. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear the second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So all of us who are waiting for him, there's nothing to worry about. Because in the first coming, he bore away our sins and we're waiting for him to come and save us from the coming wrath. If you're waiting on Jesus Christ, your eternal destiny is set. As we turn and look at 1 Samuel 15, this passage before us is a solemn passage. It's about crossing over from life to death and into judgment. It begins with the Amalekites 
facing judgment. And then it ends with King Saul being rejected by God as king over Israel. The crossing over of the Amalekites and the hacking of Agag to pieces at the end of the chapter speaks to us about life being passing over from life into not just death, but into eternal death. And then when we look at King Saul, this is really tragic. For, for all of you, I hope I can put to, bed, put to rest the idea of where Saul might be. You go read the last 15 chapters of this book, and you're going to find out that God takes Saul home. God puts him to death for his persistent disobedience, and he moves from this life of disobedience to persistent disobedience. He moves into death itself, and then he is separated from God forever. So there are two points tonight. First point is crossing over into judgment, and the second point is crossing over into persistent disobedience and living a life of living Death, that would be Saul. So first, crossing over into judgment. In this chapter, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. Samuel is to go to Saul and tell Saul exactly what he's to do, and Saul is to follow this commandment from God to the letter. But when we come to the chapter, what happens to us, instead of getting on and talking about Saul's uh, partial disobedience, which is what God calls no obedience at all, Usually people get hung up on verses 2 and 3. The Lord is going to use Saul to be his instrument to put down, to destroy the Amalekites. This is terrible stuff. This sounds so bad. He is to put to death every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every animal. Nothing is to be left alive. This is a severe command. And it causes us tremendous anxiety. This is why we get stopped here. This is no doubt a horrible judgment. The Bible tells us about a God who is loving and a God who is full of compassion. And we have every right to condemn this judgment if it's not just. If it's not just, then God, then we, should, we can hate God. But if it's just, then we have to sit here and be in awe of a God who's loving and just. So we have to ask ourselves, is this a just judgment? And it is. Look at verse 2. It's a just judgment. Verse 2, I will punish Amalek for what? For nothing? <laughs> for what he did. For what he did to Israel. How he set himself against Israel on the way while he was coming out from Egypt. Everybody who goes, everybody, if you, if you ever go to Egypt, you go down. If you ever come out of Egypt, you come up. So everybody, when they're coming out of Egypt, these Amalekites, they did something. Now, last week we talked about, y'all know one of my favorite, y'all, every now and then you'll know I, I have these favorite stories. And the, if Exodus 17 is a favorite story of mine. There's so many things there, we could just preach so many sermons off of it. But y'all all know this is the story where Moses has his hands being held up by Aaron and Hur on both sides. He's sitting there, and they're raising his hands up. And Israel gets the victory down in the valley as, as Joshua's down there with his choice soldiers. And they have the victory, and it's a wonderful thing. But what we don't hear in Exodus 17, we're just not told anything about these Amalekites, except that they attacked. Do you know anything about the Amalekites? Well, you have to look at 1 Samuel 15, 2, and you have to go look at Deuteronomy 25 to fill in the blanks about these guys. What kind of people are these guys? Well, there's many things I'm not going to get into because it would take too long. But the first thing we can see in 1 Samuel 15, 2 is it says they set themselves against 
the people of God when they came out of Egypt. One translation says they waylaid them. That kind of gets the point across, doesn't it? Waylaid them. We kind of get that idea, what that means. And then if you go to Deuteronomy 25, Moses explains that the Amalekites attacked Israel from the rear, in the weak spot. When did Satan come and attack Jesus, uh, assault him with temptations? When he was strong and powerful or when he was hungry and tired? This is the kind of thing these, these guys are bad folks. They're attacking the people of God from the, we, from the rear, where the people are worn out. I want you to imagine an old man carry, being carried on a pallet or an older woman being carried on a pallet, and they attack them from the back where the kids are, where the little babies are. These are some bad folks. When God, when, when Samuel puts Agag to death, he says, I'm going to put you down the same way you killed women who were carrying children. These are some pretty bad folks. And so now God is determined to blot them off the face of the earth. It's a just judgment. Is it a hasty judgment? Well, it's not a hasty judgment. Do you know how long it's been since this happened in Exodus chapter 17 till 1 Samuel 15? It's been 300 years. They were guilty for what they did. God has waited 300 years. And now, because they have not repented, God won't enter into a hasty judgment, but He will judge them. The Lord is not slow to anger. He's long-suffering towards sinners. And in this particular situation, His cup of anger is full, and He will bring down judgment on them for their sins. They will die physically. They will die spiritually. They will cross over into death. Well, what do we learn from this? Well, we learn two things. First of all, we learn that God punishes the wicked. What happened to the Amalekites is a portrait of what God is doing even today. Every person who will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ will die, separated from God. One day the Amalekites were present. The next day they were destroyed. One day the Sodom and Gomorrah was present. The next day God destroyed them. And in every generation, there are people, there are boys and girls and men and women who are crossing over from this life into the next life, separated from God. One by one, God's enemies are going to be destroyed. And everyone must think, oh, sinner, there's only two choices. It's either repent and believe and be forgiven or continue in your sin and be lost forever. When you and I, we, when we see passages like this, when we, in the Word of God, it brings us up against God's perfect holiness. This morning, didn't we sing, or did we sing it tonight? Holy, holy, holy. We're up against a holy God. And this holy God, our sins deserve punishment. We deserve to be separated from God, and we would be except for the mercy and the love and the compassion that God shows us in giving His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. Every single day. We're moving closer to the day of vengeance, the closer to the day of a fiery, fiery judgment. And we're only going to be safe in the arms of Jesus Christ. What do we learn from this? Well, here's a point that nobody talks about today. We learn that God comforts all of his people in his just judgment of the wicked. We don't talk about this very much. 
God did not forget the Amalekites' hatred of his people. God did not forget how he harmed them. God did not forget what he did in coming against them from the back. He marked them off. He watched what they did. And when they didn't repent, he judged them for it. Mm. And this is the message that God sent to all the world in that time by judging the Amalekites. Listen, this is the message. You know how... uh, you walk around and you, you walk around neighborhoods. If you're out in the country, you see it more than most. You see, beware of the what? Beware of the dog. Well, that's what's going on here. God's saying, beware of my sheep. You touch my sheep. You harm my sheep. You better get ready. You don't repent. I'm marking you out and I'm going to judge you. Beware of my flock. I will mark you out and I will punish you if you do not repent. Think about Saul of Tarsus. This is the very thing he repented of. (laughs) He had been touching the sheep and he repented of it or God would have touched him. If Jesus Christ is not your shepherd, he is saying, if you harm my flock, you will not and will not repent. I'll mark you out for destruction. Think about Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel went out and touched one of the lambs of God named Naboth. Godly man, godly Naboth. And God marked them off. And God watched for them to repent. And they did not repent. And the dogs licked up both of them their blood. Then the word of the Lord goes back to Naboth's family. And they're comforted to know that justice had been done. Every ruler, every nation, every terror organization, every group of people that targets Christians needs to hear this word. God says, if you touch my people or butcher my people, vengeance is mine and I will repay. There are times when God's people are going to be abused by wicked people, when we're being persecuted even to death. Moses cried out for satisfaction and got it. And God blots out Amalek later on 300 years down the road. And God will not allow things to go without being made right. You know, that's one of the things that I've had people come to me and say so many times. I've had women say it to me. I've had a girl look at me in my eyes and say, these people, my friends, got away with it. And I said, no, they don't. All of us want things to be made right. In Revelation 6, 9 through 10, we read, How long, O sovereign Lord, these are the martyrs crying out, O holy and true God, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. When justice is served, there will be comfort and there will be satisfaction. You and I, we are to pray for our enemies to repent and for their sins and for the wrath of God to fall against Jesus and not on them. But if they do not repent, God's justice will fall. Psalm 58 verse 10 says this, The righteous will be glad when they're avenged, when they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. The gospel is complete. It has both grace and judgment. It declares the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord's vengeance. And you and I must remember that God will overthrow all our enemies, all who strangle us, all who harm us and oppress us. If God doesn't do this, it means that there's no real deliverance. You and I are God's people. We will experience His favor, and all those who do harm to the flock will experience His vengeance. Well, first, crossing over into judgment. Second, we're going to look at Saul 
crossing over into persistent disobedience and living death. Now, in 1 Samuel 13, remember that terrible thing that happened? He doesn't obey, and God tells Saul he's going to tear the kingdom from his hand. That means Prince Jonathan will never be the king. But God's not finished with Saul yet. And so God sends to, the, to Samuel the prophet a word, and Samuel brings that to Saul, and he tells Saul exactly what to do. And Saul hears the message. He understands exactly what's supposed to happen. He knows he's supposed to be God's instrument to go out and put down all the Amalekites. God's, God's justice must be done. And so Saul immediately musters 210,000 people, men. So far, so good. He sets an ambush in the city of Amalek. So far, so good. He goes and he takes care of a group of people called the Kenites. You can read that there. I think it's in verse 6. The Kenites had helped Israel as they came out of Egypt, so he wanted them out of the picture. So far, so good. Verse 7, so Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as you go to Shur, which is cast, which is east of Egypt. So far, so good. I, I was taught uh, this uh, definition of obedience. Maybe you want to teach your kids this. This is, a, this is a good definition of obedience. What God says. Do what God says. Do, do what God says when God says to do it. Do all that God says with the right heart attitude. There's your definition for obedience. It looks like Saul's doing it. So far, so good. <laughs> it looks like Saul is on the bandwagon of obedience and not disobedience. And then we read verses 8 and 9. Saul captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And, were not, and he was not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So far, so what? Bad. So far, so bad. He's unwilling to destroy. Listen, listen, let's put it in terms we really... He's unwilling to destroy what God wanted destroyed. That's powerful. He's going to hold on and think he can do something good with what God said to destroy. Mark that in your minds, guys. It seemed like he was ready to obey, but he's just doing his own will. He would spare the best. He would keep Agag for a trophy. He would set up a monument for himself. <laughs> this is what God said. Saul has turned away from me. He would not. He would spare what God would destroy. So far, so bad. Well, Saul's persistent disobedience is confronted by the word of God. In verses 10 and 11, this is what the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I, God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and he cried out to the Lord all night. You know, it's really interesting. We've said before from the pulpit that it's very good for us to be grieved over the same thing God's grieved over. God's grieved over Saul. And, Saul, and Samuel's grieved over Saul. Why would Samuel be grieved over Saul? I hope y'all are good students. Y'all ought to be able to tell me why, right? Samuel's got a lot of time invested in this man. Samuel spent time with him. Samuel's talked to him. Samuel has 
discipled him, if you want to use our New Testament terms. Maybe he pleaded for God to forgive him. Maybe he even said, Lord, look at his, look at the next guy down that's coming. Look at Prince. Look at the Prince. He's really good. Let him be the next king. But in the end, he submitted to the will of God and he brings the word to Saul. So we see Saul here as the word of God comes to him. The word of God finally catches up to him. And where is he? He's setting up a monument for himself. I mean, you, you have to read this and you just think to yourself, am I really reading something? Is this really true? This man's excited about his, quote, obedience. And so when Samuel comes to Saul, Saul says to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. Really? When y'all are reading your Bibles in, in the morning beside your, with your cup of coffee, out with your cuppa and your light on and you're in the dark, do you ever just go, really? He's persuading himself that he's obeyed perfectly. And Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of sheep, verse 14, in my ears? Your professed obedience to the Lord, you, you're saying that you've obeyed, but there's something contradicted it called by lowing, bleeding. These are stuck, you know what this one of the facts are stubborn things, aren't they? They're making all kinds of noise. These sounds totally contradict his obedience. Saul immediately shoots back in verse 14. They, the soldiers, have brought them from the Amalekites for the king for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. He's rationalizing everything. He defends himself. He defends the soldiers. And this is what I was telling this, this to Pastor Mark yesterday. And then Samuel said, stop. Let me tell you what I heard from God last night. <laughs> stop, wait. And he says, speak. Is it not true, Samuel said? Saul, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, remember, by the baggage? You were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Is this a knucklehead or what? And he went on, I went on the mission. I brought back the king. And I brought back the best of the things to offer up as a sacrifice. I mean, you would think this is a fairy tale unless you'd actually sit there and read it. Think about Achan. Achan is confronted by, by Joshua about what did you do? Give glory to God. What did you do? And he, he looks and he says, everything's underneath the tent. The garments, the silver, the gold, all of it's underneath the tent. This guy, he won't even admit he's done anything wrong. And this is where we see Saul moving from persistent disobedience into living death. Samuel says this, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings there in verse 22 and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey 
is better than sacrifice. That's a verse you ought to just stamp it on your forehead. To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion as it's a sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have, Saul, rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. The argument's over. Disobedience, disobedience until living death. This man is going to live a life like a person walking around. He's dead. Separated from God, separated from Samuel, no more counsel, no more help. So he will not see Samuel again until the end. We'll talk about that later. Is there anything wrong with, with sacrifices, folks? Is there anything wrong with ritual? No, it, there's not. We, we, do rich, we have a ritual. I love our liturgy. But it won't save us. It will not replace obedience from the heart. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obviously, he's not obeying and doing what God says, when God says, all God says with the right heart attitude. So Saul is rejected. He walks away from God. Let's use these words. He's cut off from God. That's a bad thing. And then when you go to 1 Samuel 31 verse 4, God will cut him off. God's going to cut off Agag, and God's going to cut off this king who has a whole lot more information, a whole lot more knowledge, a whole lot more knowledge about God's salvation of his people than Agag ever thought of. Well, what are we to learn from this as we go to the Lord's Supper? Well, first, as he passes over from persistent disobedience into living death, this is the first thing I would say. Do not touch what God defines to be sin. That's real easy, isn't it? Do not touch what God defines to be sin. Saul was not to touch an Amalekite. He was not to make for himself a trophy from an Amalekite. He was not to bring home any of the animals and sacrifice them. And you and I, if God has defined something to be sin, it's devoted for, for, to destruction. Don't touch it. It doesn't matter how handsome he is. It doesn't matter how beautiful she is. It doesn't matter how alluring the internet website is. Do not click on it. Don't touch it. Zero. What is? Isn't that, don't, don't they have things in schools? Don't they have things in schools that say zero tolerance? Zero tolerance when it comes to sin. The goal is not to see how close you can get to sin and not sin. The goal is to stay away from sin, to say no to sin, to live a godly life. One of the things we've been dealing with with some, some Evan's friends is they, they want to talk too much about the sin. I say, say no to sin and set your mind on the things above. You with me? Say no to sin and go out and live a godly life. Say no to sin and wait on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin must not be trifled with. Number two, do not rationalize your sin. Wow, we got a, what a rationalizer. This, this ain't a kid. This is not a little boy. This is, this is a 40-something-year-old man. Amazing. You can't hide your motives from God. Stop. <laughs> hey, let me tell you what God said. What's God say to this, this rationalization that might be going on in our hearts? If we're rationalizing right now, 
don't rationalize anymore. Our flimsy excuses will not hold up against God's Word. It's God's Word say. Well, finally, write this proverb on your heart, verse 22. To obey is better than sacrifice. Remember Saul congregation. Saul's a man who gave himself to persistent disobedience and he slated for eternal punishment. There's a proverb that says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. It's not that formal worship's unimportant. He says to obey is better than sacrifice because, you see, you can't substitute the liturgy for the heart. You can't substitute the sacrifices for your, the obedience that God wants from the heart. Guys, listen, I'm not picking on you, but, you know, um, the outside of the house, it may look totally fine. Did you know the guys next door to me, I talked to him yesterday. I, I said, how's things going? He says, our house flooded last week. So that's the third person I've heard about having a flood. But on the outside, everything looks so okay. But the water's running and the floors are being ruined and the carpets are being ruined. And every time we come and we worship God, every time we recite the creed, every time we have a fellowship, every time we have a Bible study, every time we have a prayer session, and we do these things without our hearts, it is not acceptable to God. God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. Nothing's more important than obedience from a heart of love. That's what faith is. Obedience from a heart of love. 1 John 2.3 says this, We know that we have come to know Jesus if we obey or keep His commandments. And Jesus says something like this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, tonight we can celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus invites us to the Supper. And in the words of institution, listen to what he says. He says, in regard to the bread, this is my body which is broken for you. Listen, do this. You with me? And then he says in regard to the cup, he says, this is my, the new, the blood, my blood of the new covenant. Drink it. In another place he says, Drink from the cup, all of you. So I want you to take note of two things. He offers the bread and the wine to his disciples. And the second thing to take note of is he commands his disciples to take the bread and to take from the cup and to drink and to eat. Tonight, Jesus distinguishes his disciples by giving to them the bread. He distinguishes his disciples by giving them the wine. He doesn't give it to the people outside the church. He gives it to the people in the church. He distinguishes his disciples by giving to them the bread and the wine. And tonight, Jesus is present to give you his body and his blood. And if you love him, if you've been baptized, if you're a member of this church or another church, and you're in good standing with your church and with God, then we welcome you to this table. He distinguishes you by the bread and the wine. Second, those who are distinguished are commanded to eat and drink. He doesn't say, if you feel like it. You hear me, guys? He doesn't say, hey, if you don't feel like it, 
You don't have to eat it. You don't have to drink. Now, if you defy, if we, we all know that nobody, a person who's not a Christian doesn't need to take the Lord's Supper. But if you are here and you're a Christian, unless you're just defying God's will, then join in with all us humble souls who understand that we're poor in spirit, who understand that we're imperfect, join the club of imperfect ones who need to eat this bread and drink this cup and obey. You're up against a commandment. And what do disciples who are command, given commandments do? Our confession says every time that we hear a promise, we believe it. Our confession says every time we hear a command, we obey it. Our confession says every time we hear a threat, we, we tremble. Every time we hear a command, we obey it. Tonight, don't let anything keep you from this supper. Uh, as we take to partake tonight, remember that the inner circle of the <clears throat> trays have uh, grape juice and the outer circle is the wine. Let's pray and prepare. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to eat and drink with you. We thank you that you are present with us by your Spirit to feed us the grace that we need for the weeks ahead. We pray, Father, that as we eat and as we drink, that we would participate spiritually, that we would take in the grace that you have to give us in this bread and wine, that you would strengthen us. We need this strength. We need to be re-upped. We need to be refreshed. So do this, Lord, as we eat and drink. Set these elements apart from the common sake of use for our good and for your glory. This is our prayer.